0: Business is boring as made by the spin-off with help from Callahan Innovation.
1: Here's your host, Simon Baum. Every company these days has a lofty goal. App makers with silly camera filters say they exist to bring humans together. Every company says it's out to change the world and make it a better place, but often that's nonsense. Not so for today's guest. Professor Steve Henry is the founder and inventor of Code Technology, who has worked to make commercialization and mass application of research in partnership between his company and AUT. His work developed a compound which is now being developed into a potential cure for solid cancers. It's also in development for products that could be used to prevent people with surgical implants getting infections. And he's only just getting started with the applications of the technology. He's CEO of Code Biotech, a biotechnology company he's been building since 1996, taking his research into synthetic molecules and how applying them to cells and surfaces can change the way they interact with their environment. For example, coding a cancer cell with a synthetic shape can make the body see it in a way that it means it can fight it, something Steve will explain a lot better shortly. This idea, the commercialisation, patenting and market development has seen Steve Henry selected as a finalist for the 2008 New Zealand Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year, the 2011 recipient of the Royal Society of New Zealand's prestigious R.J. Scott Medal and in 2015 Code Biotech and Steve won the Supreme New Zealand Innovator Award. This year, a bit of exciting news. Uh, he's become the first Australasian to secure a spot in the world-leading Johnson & Johnson Innovation Centre in Houston and to talk innovation, commercialization, and building biotech as a category. Professor Steve Henry joins us today. G'day. Greetings. So, sorry for the, uh, the, the long intro there, but just want to give a bit of context to all, all the work that you've got going on. Um, should we Should we start at the beginning of your career? What attracted you to research? I think you're born... To be as a researcher, nothing
2: really attracted me. I, I think back as a child, I was doing research, you know, albeit not in, in a real sense. Uh, but as a child, I was I was a researcher. So, and I I originally trained as a medical laboratory technologist. I had no university training, so I went and worked in a medical laboratory, qualified as a med lab tech, and uh, from that I was doing research on the side, and uh, eventually. That research actually morphed into code technology. That's quite a good story.
1: That's that's really interesting. Like, um, when you started as as an academic like that, did you think that there would be a business side to what you were doing as well, or, or did the research was that like a pure kind of um scientific endeavour for you? So I'm
2: not a real academic. Okay. Um, I'm often described as the most non academic academic by my the head of school at AUT, which I think is a, a nice compliment more than anything. Um I originally trained by apprenticeship style way back in time with no university degree and a five year apprenticeship training in medical laboratory science. And then throughout my career I've always held a full time job and done university studies on the side. Um and uh so, you know, I developed through that way. So being a researcher was something that I did along the way, but you know, sure, I am an academic in a true sense with many, many publications and all those bits of pieces. But yeah, a couple, like two separate PhDs, ah, uh, yeah. But you know, there are things that happen along the way; they they weren't something I set out to do. They were just something that fitted into where I needed to be to be able to do what I am doing. So they were mechanisms to get to the end, not a goal.
1: What what attracted you to and what led you to be researching? Things at like um, you know a level that you 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 can't see you know the, the the cellular level the, these things that are so small.
2: Yeah, that's that's a really good point. You know, we never ever actually see what we're trying to look for. All we do is look for the consequences of what we're trying to do. So, in other words, if you know, it's a bit like a magnet moving something. It can move something, but you don't actually see what what's actually happening. Um, I guess you know, that's what most research is about. You can't actually see it. You can't see a tree growing. When you get right down it to the molecular level, you know, you know these things are there. And it's a beautifully complicated world. And I think that I like chaos and not knowing what is true and what's not true and then trying to make sense of it, it fits in with, you know, my psyche, I suppose.
1: Tell me a little bit about what it was that you discovered that led to you wanting to found uh, Coat. So, What did you find out about cells and surfaces and how you could apply something to them?
2: Okay, so we'll wind the clock back to the journey because the journey really started a very long time ago um, in the 80s. And when I was working in the blood transfusion service, I was studying a blood group system. It was called the Lewis blood group system, and it consists of a molecule called a glycolipid. That means it's got a sugar head on it and a lipid tail. And these natural molecules, which had variations in Polynesians, which is what I was studying, um, just as part of my work process back then, have the ability to hop into cell membranes and label them. And that was known way back in 1955. But nobody ever thought anything about these molecules. So then, uh, over many, many years, I took these molecules to bits, the mechanisms by which they work, and then... As late as 1990, having worked with these for many years, I thought, I wonder if I could commercialise this um, in, in a form of making it. And the driver here was actually how hard it is to get money as an academic or a researcher out of the granting system. And I thought, well, maybe it might be easier to fund this process by creating its own um, self-generating revenue model where it will make money that it will support the research and make the money. So I kind of got driven across into the commercialization side of things. Always had a good understanding of commercialization. And and now I'm fully integrated that, you know, in many researchers, you need to have the commercialization to actually take it through. And innovation, it's just essential. There's no innovation really in, in most sectors that doesn't have a commercialization aspect to it that must
1: have been quite pioneering in 96 to be setting up a commercialisation uh, kind of, of research approach. And, and t- tell me about kind of like uh, partnering with universities because I guess the difference between uh, the timescale of your average company and path to profit and the timescale of your average research project in a university uh, means that you're more able to take ideas from where to go in that environment.
2: Yeah, look, um, we had a very special opportunity that landed on our plate, um, and it happened in 1996, where I was actually based in Sweden, and I was coming back to New Zealand to set up a company, and I AUT at that time was um, AIT, it was a technical institute, and it wanted to become a university. And we kind of said, well, we're happy to put our research into your fledgling university, but we want to control and run our research in a way that's not normal in a research environment or commercialization university environment. And they said, yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. And uh, we did that. And um, so we built this AUT relationship. And it's been pivotal to us getting through this whole process as an academic the the journey to commercialization is less than 10%. So in other words, when you invent something and you publish it, that's less than 10%. The time, the money, the effort and everything. The commercialization journey or the innovation journey to convert it into something useful is the really, really hard bit. Um, And AUT provided us with this environment where we could um, develop things and then do the next stage, take it through to real commercialization um, without being worried that we were generating research outputs so it was a risk that they took with us which is now paying off and it's a long-term risk as you said these journeys in biotech are huge 10 to 15 years is the normal time span from thinking up the idea to actually converting it through into something that's actually generating revenue a long time spans and we, I guess we were an investment for AUT which and a very different model, which worked very well, I think, for both of us.
1: And I guess when you're – you know, I often talk to entrepreneurs and there's that uh, kind of metaphor of you're putting the tracks down as the train's going, but you guys are actually doing that in that you are probably having to educate people about the technology and the, 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 the whole market is being built. Yeah, look, the – We invented a platform
2: that nobody knew could do what we're doing. So it's a paradigm shift, and this has been a nightmare for me. Its biggest problem is it is too simple. Um, When you use code technology to modify a cell, you take one part of cells and one part of the solution and you put them together. That's the whole method. Scientists tend not to like methods that are that simple because it's too good to be true. It won't work. So it's taken a long time to be educating the marketplace that this is a very robust technology. We can do all the things we say, um, and it can do it so easily that it's crazy. I mean, compare that to molecular biology. You would be pushed to get the result we can do in a day. You'd be pushed to get that result within three to six months.
1: And and so is that when you you go and change cells at like a one-on-one level or something as opposed to just apply a a coat? Yeah.
2: So changing cells on a one-on-one level, in the cancer immunotherapy, it's a matter of just injecting the tumour and walk away. That's the whole procedure. The molecules will self-assemble into the the membrane. When we coat a surgical implant, we just spray it on the surface, and in one second, the molecules self-assemble as the coating on the surface, and that's any surface, plastics, rubbers, metals, glass, everything we can coat.
1: (laughs) let's look at that as the um let's look at that as the example so that application of being able to coat a surgical implant so a hip implant say uh, lots of people get infections when they get put in at the moment by coating it you what what do you do to stop the infection what happens there Okay, so I wouldn't say
2: lots of people get the infections. It's probably around about 2%, but it's 2% of every single implant, be that breast, hip, knee, whatever, it makes no difference, will get infected in a good surgical setting. The implications of getting infected are very, very poor for the person who gets it. I mean, you may end up months and months in hospital, and it can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to manage a infected hip implant, and, of course, not so good for the patient who's infected. Um, So we not yet have a product in the market. We have a prototype, and the prototypes are looking really, really good. And basically, we just have a spray bottle, and we just squirt our molecules onto everything, the hip implant, the surgical equipment, everything, the rubber gloves, even the clothing that people are wearing. The molecules self-assemble on that surface and actually will then kill the bacteria that comes in contact with that surface at least for the next 24 hours. Now, we don't have any clinical data on it. We only have uh, proof-of-concept laboratory data, but we're looking to build that out over the next few years. Like all this research, it takes a lot of time and big
1: investments. And so I imagine in the past, I mean, people would have been sterilizing or uh, putting antibacterial wipes or something over these these, these products. What is it that's different about what you do that means that it's um, an order of magnitude greater in terms of efficacy? Look,
2: that's a very good question. I mean, the surgical theatre, when there's nobody in there, not even the patient, is a sterile environment. Mm. The moment people walk into the theatre, it's no longer a sterile environment. It's as clean as you can get it and as low bacterial as you can get it. The moment you open the paper bag or the plastic bag that the surgical implant is in which was sterile inside of there is exposed to the environment and it only takes two or three bacteria which are incredibly tiny to settle on that surface and then they can stick there and then when you put it in there's a small chance that you know in a few percent of people that might develop into an infection what we're doing instead is we can put a coating on that implant that when the bacteria falls on it, at any stage, it will kill it. Mm. So rather than trying to prevent the bacteria from growing, we kill it before it even has a chance to grow. And, uh, you know, you'll still possibly use other things. I mean, antibiotics are quite problematic. Uh, Our molecules have got nothing to do with antibiotics. Our dominating molecule creates what's called a superoxide at the surface, and the bacteria just get oxygen poisoned when they come in contact. But a simple procedure, and um, stop, we call it stopping the race.
1: And, and after 24 hours, it dissipates with no effect to the person who it's been put in? Is that kind of the, the idea? That
2: will be hopefully yeah. what will occur. We expect that to be the case. Uh, it is a temporary coating. It will only be on a surface for a day to a few days, depends on where it goes to. But once you're surgically um, sewn back together, um, we do want the molecule to disappear but the coating is so small, you know. It's it's um, if, if you imagine paint that's not painted on your walls, we would be a thousandth of the thickness of a coat of paint that, that's on your wall. So mm. thin it's 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 just a molecular layer. It's really tiny.
1: And is it expensive, like you know, to to produce a uh, one one thousandth of a paint layer of a molecular coating?
2: The molecules are incredibly expensive if you have to buy a lot. So you'd probably have no change out of about 30 or $40 million for a kilo of material. That sounds like a lot of money. However, the amount that you will use in any particular setting becomes very, very low. So they, because they're uh, just a monolayer, a molecular layer that's on the surface, the, the amount of material required is, is incredibly low. So... Not as bad as it sounds, even though expensive.
1: And in terms of the path to get that application of your research, so you did your research leading up to 1996 over, I guess it was the building of lots and lots of different things along the way.
2: That was studying natural molecules. So all the way up to 96, i studied natural molecules. From 96 to 2001, I tried to commercialise the natural molecules by ripping them out of cells, and that kind of worked, but didn't have commercial legs. And then we said, in 2000, we have to go synthetic. And when we went synthetic, the world changed for us because we put a piece into the molecule called a spacer. That was just to do the chemistry, but in fact, that was the whole core of code technology, completely changed what the molecule could do from a natural molecule. So we kind of invented a new class of compound of self-assembling molecules. And it was accidental. You know, we weren't that
1: smart. And so self-assembling, does that mean that that's the difference in what you were saying between injecting a solution in and then it taking months to assemble versus you pop it on and it is in the shape that you want it to be in immediately?
2: Uh, not quite. So in molecular engineering, you have to insert genes into the cell and then this has to fit into the machinery and you've got to build those genes and put them in there. And then you, to make some things, you might need three or four genes and they might not work, et cetera, um, to make something go onto the cell surface. But that's a permanent change. What we're doing is putting a temporary coating on the outside of the cell to achieve what you want to achieve within a short period of time. And remember, molecular engineering only works on cells. Uh, it won't work on a piece of stainless steel, for example.
1: Ah, and in terms of that path, so in the early 2000s, you worked that out, and then it's taken until 2017 for people to be licensing it and then trialling it in these applications. Okay. We're, we're nowhere and then, near that smart. <laughs> and, then, and then how far, how far off are we from seeing it in people? I mean, what's the path for... You, you know, your, your, your breakthrough and your idea to actually be in common usage. So we didn't work it all out straight away. In
2: 2001, we invented the first constructs that were able to modify cells. It took me about eight years before I thought, I wonder if I could apply these onto surfaces instead mm. of cells. And uh, when we applied them onto surfaces, we found that they actually worked. Uh, that was a big surprise to us. We thought, well, how is it doing this? Um, and then from that, we built, kept building on our own successes and more building on our own failures, um, new opportunities as they, they go through. Um, sorry, I forgot
1: the rest of the, oh, the yeah. So, so what, what's the kind of time period until it's in common usage?
2: Okay, so we have over 10 different projects that are running through and we recognized early on that code technology is way too big for us. So what we did in step was we applied a different commercialization model. This is a platform that has the potential to be in 100, if not a thousand, different products simultaneously, with completely different from coatings on surfaces to anti-counterfeiting constructs on, on high-value goods right through to modifying cells. So we said very early on, we could pick one of them and concentrate on one of them, or we could pick them all. But how can you pick them all? You can't do that, particularly from a place like New Zealand. So we did a we did something different. We said, well, if we control the intellectual property portfolio and make it available for everybody else to use their imaginations and uh, enable them to develop the new products, then we can clip the ticket, take a royalty on their efforts by us enabling them to do new things. And I think that's a good position to tell you about the cancer therapy. Yeah, yeah We didn't invent the cancer that, yeah. therapy. We invented the molecule that somebody bought out of a catalogue to try as tested in con- as a control in their system. And they found that actually it did exactly what they wanted and they developed the cancer treatment. And then they came to us and they said, wow, this molecule is incredible. We need lots of it. How can we do this? And then we started working in with them and helped them develop the project through and supported them in this process but that was their brilliant idea not ours
1: tell me how that works that the, the cancer uh ther- therapy that's in development
2: so the cancer therapy is really quite simple the, the issue with cancer is you've got these cells growing uncontrollably in your body and they kind of got little mechanisms that they can hide behind so your body doesn't see them And the reason they're growing is you don't see them. So because you don't see them, you can't remove them. In fact, most of us probably get cancer or have cancerous events several times a day or a week. But our body sees it and eliminates it when it's the single cell that's done the bad thing. However, every now and then a cell will lose control, lose the ability to stop growing and grow uncontrollably. But it will also mutate and then can do a few things. So what we try and do is teach the body to see the real cancer. And the way we do this is quite cunning. Our bodies already know how to reject tissues from animals. So if I put a piece of animal into you anywhere, your body will within seconds start attacking it and destroying it. So what we did is we made a paint that was based on the surface structures that are present on the outside of animal tissues. Now, if you put that into syringe and you inject it into just one tumor, primary, secondary, it doesn't matter, just one tumor, the outside of that tumor will now become coated with the molecules that make it look like it's animal tissue. Your body knows how to destroy animal tissue. So within seconds, your body is starting to attack that piece of animal tissue. And it attacks it very, very aggressively. These molecules that we put in, your body absolutely hates them big time. Yet they're quite harmless if we accidentally put them into the circulation because they just disappear. So it's quite safe in that respect. So your body now has a cancer cell that's been labeled so that it looks like it is a piece of animal tissue. Your body starts smashing it up and then carrying the fragments through to the immune system uh, who kind of look at it really hard and they say, well, hang on, what's these other things we haven't seen before? And those other things that they haven't seen before are your own personal cancer antigens. So we couldn't vaccinate you against them because everybody's cancer is going to be a little bit different. Mm. But what we do is we make your body look at your cancer and then see the real cancer molecules that are yours and then mount an immune response to those. Now it turns on the system and says, everywhere you can find these, go out and find them and destroy them. So you inject one tumor, teaches your body to recognize all your cancers, primaries and secondaries, no matter where they are, go out and find and destroy them. So that's moving into human clinical trials. So all the animal trials are completed. All the toxicity is completed. Um, it moves into human clinical trials in um, the first half of next year.
1: That that must be so exciting to see the application of your idea to, to be doing these things. How does it feel? Oh, look, it is
2: really exciting. But the rest of our platform is, is very exciting as well. Um, from our perspective, the immunotherapy is kind of it's in the hands of our licensees Um, we get to see all the data and we have telecons with them and so we know what's happening and yeah that's really exciting if our molecule makes the difference is the only reason it works which is our molecule is the only thing being used or has a big impact that will be really satisfying however you know code technology has a huge number of opportunities in many many other areas and um, you know so we're working on all the other areas and that's what we're Faced with on a daily basis, all these other areas. Many of them, I can't tell you though, which we're working on with big pharmaceutical companies, and they are equally as exciting as the cancer therapy. I
1: guess that becomes almost like a um, a responsibility when you have a platform like this, not just to work on it by yourself, because it could have so many applications across so many areas. Did you did you did you kind of see that early on and decide that that had to be the way? Yeah, that was uh, a founding concept. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, this is, if, if I was to do code technology properly, I'd probably need a 1,000 scientists working on it. Mm. So how can I get a 1,000 scientists working on it? It's not possible. So turn the model around. Let's enable others to use, do it doing with their resources and share in, in the rewards. So we're very happy to develop it till we prove it. We've put a patent down, and once the patent's down, we enable others to pick it up and run it, and then we support them in their commercialization of it. And, you know, we will get some small returns back um, on that basis, which is recognition of our contribution to it. But this is potentially a huge technology.
1: That's a really interesting place to pick up something that you've said before uh, about innovation and what that means. So oftentimes, I think people think of innovation as being the invention. So in this case, that would be coming up with the technology behind Code Biotech. But actually, the innovation in your thinking, uh, if, if, if I've read it right in the past, is that um, is, is all the people then doing the work to commercialise that invention is the innovation. Is that, is that
2: kind of the way you look at it? The most simple way to explain this is um, invention is uh, taking cash and converting it into an idea. Innovation is converting the idea into cash. That's a crude way of looking at it, but it's actually taking the invention and actually making it viable and making it something useful that people can use. And that's really the hard bit about it. We happen to be doing both ends. We happen to be generating the ideas for it, but we're actually using, and our innovation is actually enabling others to create the products and these things. So we're partnering the innovation side of things, um, and um, even partnering the research side of things because the platform's grown so big. To put that in context, uh, we have over 27 patent families with uh, more than 150 patents. So that's what we do. We control the intellectual property and enable others to do the invention. And in fact, Code Biotech even contracts out all its research these days. So for example, the AUT Center for Code Technology Innovation is not part of CodeBiotech, the company. It is a contractor based in AUT where there is over 10 phd students and uh, phd's and professors and their job is actually to be developing the next generation of code technology
1: looking at this from kind of your perspective of having been a pioneer in partnering with universities for commercialization and a pioneer in biotech um, what what have you learned from this that can be applied more to help foster biotechnology and commercialization of research here
2: okay the number one learning is this is so damn hard it will just about kill you it you have to have uh, perseverance that is you know you're going to get knocked and kicked all the way and and you've got to say okay i can still do it it, it is the hardest journey you you could ever take on so that's the number one learning i think the other learning is you have to learn how to survive. We have to put in mechanisms to be able to survive because it's a tough journey raising capital in New Zealand to fund ventures that are going to make losses for ten to fifteen years plus. Um, and uh, you know, even though we're generating revenue and reasonable volumes of revenue, we're still not. Gen- we keep on investing until you know the big payday comes through, and maybe the big payday is coming through you know, within the next still a few years away. Yeah. Everything takes time here. So you have to have money to be able to deliver on research. It's a risk profile. Uh, it's very hard to run, uh, raise capital in New Zealand for innovation. Um, and so you've got to design your company for global and you've got to design your company for ability to scale. If you don't design it for those things and you've got to think, how can I do all of those things with virtually no money based here in New Zealand? Well, you can do it, but you need to adopt a mechanism that can allow it, and of course, by basing our company on a university campus, it's given us ability over the years. When we've had big teams, that you know, when the times get tougher, we can strip down to a, a survival team, and we've stripped down to survival teams a couple of times during our journey. So, what,
1: what, what did you have to learn as well? Like when you mentioned there, you have to think global, you have to have a structure that can handle the growth. Um, was that something that you had studied? in tandem with uh, science and engineering and and the like as you went? Or is that stuff that you had to kind of learn along the way?
2: You learn it along the way. Um, I think one of the biggest risks is if you adopt somebody else's model, Um, And there's also what I call the success success factor. So if you put a 100 people in a room uh, and uh, you gave them all the same idea, one of them might become successful, and that person will then write the book on this is how to be successful, and everyone applied exactly the same model. So that doesn't mean the models you see are going to be the model you should adopt. It's sometimes being in the right place at the right time, and, of course, you need to survive. So it's uh, you have to be adaptable within your model. But if we look at our business model, it's unchanged from the model that we presented to our shareholders in two thousand one, two thousand three. You know the business is still running on the same model, but you adapt and adopt and and you focus on it, and you need to be incredibly focused particularly when you've got a problem like we have, our applications are totally diverse. So we're completely unfocused in our applications, but we're 100% focused on if it is not code technology, we will have nothing to do with it. So you need to learn how to be focused, you need to learn how to put in systems, and you need to work to a plan. And it's for me, it was learning on the way. But the most valuable learnings I've seen is by observation and war stories. You know, listening to other people, what they've done, what's worked, what's failed. But you've got to chart your own course. Don't try and mimic something somebody else has done. Because that time has passed.
1: Do, do you pull things from the scientific method into the way that you kind of build your company? Like um, a lot of company building is I have an idea. I have some tactics that I think might get me there. I'm going to try them and I'm going to do more of what works, which I guess there's some similarities there to um, testing a hypothesis and doing more of the bits that show promise.
2: No. No! <laughs> we do it a different way. Yeah. We look at what the market is mm. wanting or a space in the market. We work up what the pro. The final product would look like we look at what its competitive ability to enter that market is what is the revenue we can generate from it and how can we position this nicely in the market then we work backwards from that to see if we've got a a research solution when an existing platform that can meet it so we don't invent usually occasionally it happens it's a side invention but usually we look at um, how can we apply our technology into an area? But we only go into an area if it has a market driver that actually takes us in there. So that's very non um, academically focused. And that's probably an important skill um, to have leading a biotech company, particularly with a scientific background, is not become emotional about your project. It might be beautiful and it might be going to win you the Nobel Prize. If it's going to make no money, we dump it. <laughs> so it's, it's it's quite brutal and we got some beautiful projects like that in fact we kind of didn't dump them we gave them away and Emory University is running such a beautiful project for us because I can't see how I can make money on it on the short term so we packaged everything up and gave it to them and said let's see if you can do something admittedly I do own the patent on it or the company <laughs> owns the patent so should they do something we will still reap a benefit but um, yeah it's uh, scientific method is important uh, for doing science, it's not a business strategy.
1: In terms of um, the the building the, the 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 kind of entrepreneurs that come after you, I think like from the tech example, it's the first wave of the tech successful that have helped really uh, foster the second wave by investing in them, becoming board members and mentors and the like. As part of that first wave of biotech, you know, is it until you get a big payday that you're able to then start investing? you know, time and growing the scene, are you still kind of like all head down inside your own company or is that the goal to kind of foster?
2: Uh, you know, it's interesting. Most entrepreneurs like myself are really not driven by the actual dollar values we will get. You know, we certainly have no objection to receiving the money, but in fact, you'll probably find that um, almost everything that I earn from it will be reinvested back into development of, of new technologies within the sector and you know one of the directors uh, who's one of the original shareholders tonight we have been talking about ultimately setting up a venture fund for doing these kind of things Mm -hmm. but you know just coming back to uh, the entrepreneur I mean you know I think you're born an entrepreneur Um, you've got to have a skill set it's not necessarily an ideal skill set or a perfect you know to to have but it's the skill set that you need and and the number one in there is you've gotta be passionate about what you've got to do, and you're gonna people are gonna to say to you all along this journey, "No, nah, it won't work, it'll fail." We even had experts come in and actually report to my board that we would dump this company, you know, and uh look who's laughing now um but you know it's 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 a tough journey, and ninety five percent of people who think they're an entrepreneur and go into it will not be able to achieve because they don't have that absolute love and passion they're doing it because they want to be an entrepreneur but that's not the right way and i don't personally think that education is important in this process you bring around the skill sets you need to deliver things uh you know i mean for me i invented all of code technology but i it's i got the easy job i just wake up and think i think we should you know there's a good market opportunity to use it here i think we could build a molecule like this then I say to my CSO, "I want you to build me this molecule and test to see if it works." Mm. He's got the hard bit. He's, he's got to he's got to convert that that idea in, into the reality, and then my job gets even harder. Now I've got to drive the commercialization opportunities from that out of there. So yeah,
1: I roundabout as, answer. I guess as a final thought, kind of, what advice do you give to um, young entrepreneurs who are like starting out, especially in the kind of biotech space? Uh, do you tell them to? To stay close to a university? Do you tell them to stay close to a big pharmaceutical company? Like, what what do you do?
2: The first bit of advice I give to anybody is I say, don't. You should not do this. Okay, and if they think that's good advice, perfect. If they don't think that's good advice, then there's a chance that they actually are an entrepreneur. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, you've got to cull them out in there because you're going to fail. This is going to be a painful journey. And unless you know that it's you're almost certainly going to fail on it and you're still prepared to go ahead uh, with it. So, the bit of advice then th- that's the starting point. The second thing is get good business advice and good mentoring. But remember, there are a lot of people out there who hold themselves out as experts and they'll say it won't work and all of these things. Uh, you don't necessarily listen to those people. But you must be market-facing. You must do your numbers. You must calculate what is the share you can get and be realistic. You know It's going to take twice as long as you expect. It's going to take twice as much as you expect. And that's what you'll expect. Then it's going to twice, take twice as long again as all of your best expectations. Mm. And if you can model it, that will survive that process. So in other words, four times as much money, four times as long as I expect, you know, 10 times as much pain as I'm anticipating, then you've got a chance you'll get out the other end. Um, and, you know, if you're, folk, you're motivated by money and all of these things, you, you're not going to get there you know you might make it big but um you can't those emotions can't do it you have to be driven by the emotion that it drives you you know i wake up i just start work before six every morning and i've been doing this for 20 years now plus 15 years plus working on the natural molecules and i'm still excited every day i go home to work and thinking wow you know this could be here and you're doing this and it still keeps me excited and i think Wow, it's my whole lifetime, and I'm I'm still excited about this, and, and maybe that's you know part of it. And we I have some really bad days, you know, where things don't work and things, but look, wake up the next morning and yep, ready to go.
1: That's so magic. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Steve Henry, to talk about the work of Code Biotech. Uh, thank you so much to Jose Barbosa for sleeping out to my house to uh, record and produce the show today, uh, and thank you very much for listening. If you are interested in the podcast. Have a look on iTunes up and down uh, from this podcast at uh, a bunch of other interesting people we've talked to.
0: You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound,
2: and brought to you by the Spin Off and Callahan Innovation.
0: From the Spin Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by Spark Lab. Make sure you're following Businesses Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on Spark Lab, visit sparklab.co.nz.